Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to Episode 6 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, the competition. For over half a century, details of the Soviet rocket experience were held in secrecy. Even the names of the leading Soviet rocket scientists were mentioned only rarely and in subdued terms. Some of the themes of the Soviet rocket development program were known in outline form, but the details were closely guarded. With the fall of the Soviet Union, the details and the scientists can now be discovered. We will start with the man who many people call the founder of the Soviet space program and the counterpart to Germany's Werner von Braun. He is the Ukrainian rocket scientist Sergei Korolev. Korolev was born on December 30, 1906, in the city of Zytomirin, located in the present-day Ukraine. His father, Pavel Korolev, was a teacher of the Russian language. In 1910, Sergei's parents separated and he moved with his mother to her parents' home in the town of Netsin. Korolev grew up in Netsin, mostly under the care of his grandparents. His mother wanted a higher education, so she was frequently away attending school in Kiev. Korolev had a lonely childhood with few friends. Perhaps this was due to his small stature and the favoritism of his teachers, which created a jealousy among his peers. Unlike von Braum, Korolev excelled in math from the beginning. However, his primary interest was in aeronautical engineering. This has been attributed to the influence of an air show he had attended in 1913. Korolev's parents officially divorced in October 1916, and soon Sergei's mother remarried Grigory Balanin, an engineer with German education. His new father proved to be a good influence on Sergei. In 1917, the year of the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, the family moved to Odessa, a major port city of the Ukraine, after his father received a job there on the regional railway. During his teenage years, Koreyov attended the Odessa Building Trade School, where he received vocational training in carpentry and in various academics. While there, he made an independent study of flight theory and also worked in the local glider club. A detachment of military seaplanes had been stationed in Odessa, and Koreyov took a keen interest in their operations. In 1922, Koreyov passed qualifying exams for a senior year at the Odessa school. Here he met his future wife, Ksenia Vincentini. In addition to an excellent staff, the Odessa school gave its graduates the privilege of entering colleges without entrance exams. At the time, Sergei was already interested in aviation, which his stepfather, a well-educated engineer with a booming dual career in the railroad industry and technical education, totally supported and encouraged him. In June 1923, Korolev joined the Society of Aviation and Aerial Navigation of Ukraine and the Crimea. By joining, he had his first flying lesson and also had many opportunities to fly as a passenger. 
1924, he personally designed a glider called the K-5, which was accepted by the Society of Aviation as a construction project. He also decided in 1924 to transfer to the Kiev Polytech Institute because they had an aviation branch. His curriculum was technically oriented and included various engineering, physics, and mathematics classes. Two years later, Korolov decided to transfer to Moscow's Brahman High Technical School, the best engineering college in Russia, often compared these days to the MIT in the United States. In 1929, Korolov produced his first aircraft in order to graduate from Bauman with the help of his advisor, the great Andrei Tupolev. Korolev started work at 22 years of age in an aircraft design bureau designated OPO-4, or the 4th Experimental Section. It was during 1930 Korolev was the lead designer on the Tupolev TB-3 heavy bomber. When Korolev turned 23, he became interested in the liquid fuel rocket engines. As his interest was primarily in aircraft, he saw the potential for use of these engines to propel airplanes. It was one day while he was flying around that he looked up and wondered about what was beyond the point of where he could take his plane and how he could get there. Many believe this was the start of his interest in space. In 1931, together with Frederick Sander, a space travel enthusiast, he participated in the creation of the Group for the Study of Reactive Motion, and that is abbreviated G-I-R-D, GERD. GERD was one of the earliest state-sponsored centers for rocket development in the Soviet Union. It was a group similar in function to the German VFR, or the Society for Space Travel. In July of 1932, Korolev was appointed chief of the group. During the following years, GERD developed three different propulsion systems, each more successful than the last. By then, the military became interested in the efforts of the group and began providing some funding. In 1933, the group accomplished their first launch of a liquid-fueled rocket, which was called GERD-X. In 1934, Korolev published his book, Rocket Flight in the Stratosphere. With growing military interest in this new rocket technology, the government decided to merge GERD with the Gas Dynamics Laboratory in Leningrad. The merger created the Jet Propulsion Research Institute, and that's abbreviated RNII. The RNII was headed up by the military engineer Ivan Klimolov and contained a number of enthusiastic proponents of space travel, including Valentin Glushko. Koreyov became the deputy chief of the institute. He led the development of cruise missiles and manned rocket-powered gliders called the RP-318. In 1935, Korolev was wealthy enough to move out of his parents' home. By then, he was also chief engineer at RNII. The RNII team continued their development work on rocketry with particular focus on the area of stability and control. They developed automated gyroscope stabilization systems that allowed stable flight along a programmed trajectory. Korolev was a charismatic leader 
who served primarily as an engineering project manager. He was a demanding, hard-working man with a disciplinary style of management. Koreyov personally monitored all key stages of the programs and paid meticulous attention to detail. During the late 1930s, the Soviet Union was a very dangerous place to be. Paranoia ran deep, and nowhere did it run deeper than in the country's leader, Stalin. For the purpose of consolidating his power, Stalin moved against all rivals, both real and perceived, in the Communist Party, the Red Army, and Soviet society. During this time of paranoia, people of competence often received sentences of death or imprisonment simply because of a perception of disloyalty. Soviet citizens turned on each other, denouncing one another in an attempt to save their own skins, or as a way to settle old scores. Aerospace engineers were imprisoned during 1937 through 1938, at the peak of Stalin's purges. Korolev was arrested on June 23, 1938, having been denounced by Ivan Klamahov, Gregory Landmark, and, most importantly, by his then-subordinate, Valentin Glushko. There was no evidence that Korolev himself was involved in any traitorous activities, and there was no investigation. This is what Korolev thought about the experience. Quote, I was bluntly accused of sabotaging research in a new technology. I could not imagine a more absurd and incredible charge. End quote. Korolev did not disguise his contempt for Stalin's puppets. He fully well expected to be shot and often said, quote, We will all vanish without a trace. They will just wipe us out and the newspapers won't even take notice. End quote. Knowing that his arrest was a mistake, Korolev wrote many appeals to the authorities, including Stalin. Following the fall of the NKVD head, that's the predecessor to the KGB head, Nikolai Yesov, the new chief, Leventry Berera, chose to retry Koreyov on reduced charges in 1939. But by that time, Koreyov was on his way from prison to a gulag in the far east of Siberia, where he spent several months in a gold mine in the Kalima area before word reached him of his retrial. Toward the end of 1939, he was sent back to Moscow, but he had already sustained injuries and had lost most of his teeth due to the labor camp's brutal condition. When he reached Moscow, Koreyov's sentence was reduced to eight years, which he thankfully did not have to serve in a labor camp. Other members of the RNII had also been arrested. Klamenov Langmark were executed leaving Korolev very fortunate to have survived at all. The rocket program was set back for years and fell far behind the rapid progress taking place in Germany at that time. Stalin eventually recognized the importance of aeronautical engineers for the impending war with Germany, and he released Koreyov and other technical personnel from prison who could help the Red Army by developing new weapons. A system of charoskas, 
which means prison design bureaus, was set up to exploit the jailed talent. Koreyov was saved by the intervention of senior aircraft designer Sergei Tupolev, himself a prisoner, who requested Koreyov's service in the TSKB-39 Sharaska. Koreyov, however, was not allowed to work on rockets except at night on his own time. With the victory in World War II in sight by 1944 and recognizing the immense progress that Werner von Braun's team had made with the V-2 rocket in Nazi Germany, Solon decided to develop ballistic missiles of his own. On June 27, 1944, the authorities finally paroled Koreyov. And in 1945, Koreyov was awarded the Badge of Honor, his first decoration for his work on the development of rocket motors for military aircraft. World War II ended in 1945, and this left the United States in a very powerful position. The U.S. had the atom bomb, von Braun, and the V-2. Stalin was extremely concerned. The same year, Koreyov was commissioned into the Red Army with the rank of colonel. The primary motivation for this was because the Soviets desperately needed his expertise to learn from Werner von Braun's A-4 rocket and how to produce one for the Soviet Union. On September 8, 1945, Stalin sent Koreyov and other technical experts from the Kasan Sharaska to Soviet-occupied Germany to investigate von Braun's efforts. At first, Koreyov merely accompanied the team that salvaged what was left of the V-2 production effort, but soon he began interviewing dozens of V-2 engineers and technicians who still remained in Germany. It became apparent that the U.S. did not get everything. There were remnants left which would suffice to serve the Soviets' needs. The top people were on their way to the U.S., but the lower-level staffers remained with invaluable information, even if it was in bits and pieces. Some contractors were still in business, including a plant in Berlin that built missile control systems, and one upper echelon manager, Helmut Gotrip, was captured. The Soviets placed a priority on reproducing lost documentation on the V-2 and studying the various parts and captured manufacturing facilities. That work continued in East Germany until late 1946. Most of the German experts, with the exception of Helmut Grotup, were those involved in wartime mass production of the V-2, and they had never worked directly with Werner von Braun. In August 1946, while still in Germany, Koreyov was appointed chief of the department in the newly created NII-88 in Podlipki, northeast of Moscow. This organization was made responsible for the development of and industrial production of missile technology based on German hardware. Following Koreyov's instructions, 200 German employees of the Mittelwerk V2 factory were rounded up on the night of October 22-23 
1946, after attending a drunken party and sent to relatively comfortable living conditions at Lake Seleger between Moscow and Leningrad. Thus, the jailed became the jailer. They worked feverishly on producing the technical drawings for the V-2 under the watchful eyes of Sergei Koreyov, the facility's chief engineer. The Germans had little direct contact with Koreyov's engineers, aside from insisting in the launch of a few more V-2s from Kaputstan Yar. They mainly answered written questions. They were finally returned to Germany between 1950 and 54. October 1947, the Soviets had created the R-1 from those blueprints and soon were successfully test-firing the missile. A total of 11 were launched, with 5 hitting the target. This was comparable to the German hit ratio and demonstrated the unreliability of the rocket. The same year, Koreyov worked on a newer design with Glushko, creating the R-2, which had the first separable warhead and more than double the range of the V-2. This was followed by the R-3, which had a range of 3,000 kilometers and thus could target England. However, Glushko couldn't get the engines to develop the required thrust, and the project was finally canceled in 1952. Later in that same year, work began on the R-5, which had a more modest 1,200-kilometer range. The R-3 completed a successful test flight in 1953. In 1952, Koreyov decided to join the Soviet Communist Party. It was a tactical move born out of the necessity to request money from the government for his future projects. However, it was not until April 1957 that the government was willing to declare Koreyov to be rehabilitated from his crimes. In spite of the Soviet progress on ICBM technology, Koreyov was preoccupied with the use of rockets for space travel. In 1953, he proposed the use of the R-7 design for launching a satellite into orbit. He pushed his idea with the Academy of Science of the USSR, including a concept for sending a dog into space. He also had to overcome resistance in the military and among party members. The first true intercontinental ballistic missile, abbreviated ICBM, not only in Russia but in the whole world was the R-7. This was a two-stage rocket with four strap-on boosters surrounding Glushko's core engine. The boosters detached after they expended their fuel. The R-7 had a maximum payload of 5.4 tons, which was sufficient to carry the Soviets' bulky nuclear bomb over an impressive distance of 7,000 kilometers. After several test failures, the R-7 successfully launched on August 1957, sending a dummy payload to the Kamachtka Peninsula. It was Koreyov's R-7 ICBM that launched Sputnik 1 on October 4, 1957. This launch galvanized American concern about the capability of the Soviet Union to attack the U.S. with nuclear weapons using ballistic missiles.
Indeed, the Soviet Union's succession of Sputnik and Luna launches, combined with the belligerent claims of Premier Nikita Khrushchev, created the public impression that the Soviet Union was far ahead of the United States in the development of unstoppable ICBMs and space weapons. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.